Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, and it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season four, episode six, and we're so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 2007 exploitation horror film, Death Proof. It was written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. It stars Kurt Russell, Zoe Bell, Rosario Dawson, Tracy Toms, Vanessa Ferlito, Sydney Poitier, and Rose McGowan. So we're not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause the show and watch it first. Still here? Okay, cool. Let's get this morning started. So the film pays homage to the slasher, exploitation, and muscle car films of the 1970s that were normally shown in what is called grindhouse theaters. Now, according to historian David Church, this theater type was named after the grind policy, a film programming strategy dating back to the early 1920s, which continuously showed films at cut-rate ticket prices that typically rose over the course of the day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. So I actually saw a few things that could potentially mean Grindhouse. Like, I actually watched this documentary about Grindhouses, and they said that, oh, it was called a Grindhouse because the places that showed like burlesque shows mm-hmm. were known as like grind kind of oh okay yeah and so then like as these women who were performing burlesque uh got their like acts like taped and like <laughs> <laughs> i'm a 90s child <laughs> and yes. um like and put on film mm-hmm. uh people stopped like going to the actual live shows because they could just see a film version of it oh. and so that's why they like started calling them grind houses because the ones where the burlesque women were being like filmed uh they also showed like these exploitation films but i th- from what i saw like that was something that um people have said that that's why it's called that but other people have said no it's because of the grind policy ah okay so yeah wow, that, so it's either one of, yeah that's a lot of really interesting history there yeah so there you go so it's either one of those but historian david church said it was because of the grind policy gotcha let us know guys what you've heard about the name grindhouse oh and that's like when you're on your grind you know exactly like when you're working hard yeah absolutely nice okay the idea came to robert rodriguez and quentin tarantino when tarantino set up screenings of double features in his house complete with trailers before and in between the films During one screening in 2003, Rodriguez noticed that he owned the same double feature movie poster as Tarantino for the 1957 films Drag Strip Girl and Rock All Night. Rodriguez asked Tarantino, quote, I always wanted to do a double feature. Hey, why don't you direct one and I'll do the other? Tarantino quickly replied, and we've got to call it Grindhouse. Oh my God, amazing. (laughs) 
Now, I've heard two different stories as to how Tarantino came up with the concept of death proof. One is that it developed from his fascination for the way stuntmen would, quote, death proof their stunt cars so a driver could survive a horrific high speed crash and collision. The other is that he was at a mechanics and he overheard them talking about how to death proof a car. And he approached them and was like, you can actually death proof a car. (laughs) So it's either one of those, possibly both. Nice. This inspired Tarantino to create a slasher film featuring a deranged stuntman who stalks and murders sexy young women with his death proof car. Oh my God. Apparently, it was director Robert Rodriguez who suggested the film be titled Death Proof. But contrary to popular belief, that was the only thing he helped on for this film. Hmm. In an interview, Tarantino revealed that he cast Kurt Russell as the killer stunt driver because, quote, For people of my generation, he's a true hero. But now there's a whole audience out there that doesn't know what Kurt Russell can do, unquote. After being stunned by stunt woman Zoe Bell, who worked as (laughs) Uma Thurman's stunt double (laughs) in Tarantino's earlier film, Kill Bill, Tarantino wrote her the leading female role. Death Proof was released theatrically in the United States in April 2007 as part of a double feature with Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror under the collective title Grindhouse. The films were released separately outside the United States on DVD, with Death Proof going on sale in the U.S. on September 18, 2007. Now, Death Proof received mixed to poor reviews, with Tarantino stating that even though he thinks it's his worst film, he still likes it. And I think that's sort of the point, because exploitation films aren't supposed to be good. Right, yeah. Well, you succeeded. Robert Humanick, I think, said it best when he said, quote, Death Proof doesn't simply comment on its genre inspirations. It adds to their very legacy, mm-hmm. unquote. Mm-hmm. So with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. So, Death Proof follows the story of stuntman Mike and his terrifying Chevy Nova stunt car. Mike gets his kicks from stalking groups of young women and murdering them with his car. (laughs) It seems like this is a pattern of behavior, and it makes him a very interesting serial killer for sure. He travels the country looking for his next victims, but he messes with the wrong group of girls, and after a near-death car chase with them, featuring a beautiful white a 71 Dodge Challenger in the style of Kowalski's car from Vanishing Point. (laughs) He's ripped from his car and beaten to death by a trio of females who aren't here to play games. In true Tarantino fashion, it's bloody, filled with action, and laced with quirky dialogue in between the car chases. Not to mention plenty of females kicking ass. There you go. Yeah. That's basically what it is. It's a wild ride. (laughs) Thank you so much for that plot summary, Abby. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about the Bechdel test. Yes. Heck yes, it passes. Even though the first half of the film has a lot of dialogue between women talking about men, the women in the second half of the film mostly talk about their careers and hobbies. I don't even think they ever mention a man besides stuntman Mike. Well, they talk about when they're when they pick uh, Zoe up from the airport. They're mm-hmm. all in the car and like talking about their like onset flings that they have with people. Oh, I guess so. But like that's the only time they really talk about it. That's true. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
um, I love that scene when they're in the diner. Mm-hmm. And that scene is so great because even though I don't consider myself a gearhead at all, but mm. you're a gearhead, which is really cool. Sort of. I Here and there. Here and there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I just loved it because I was like listening to them talking. I was like, this is amazing because not only am I learning new stuff, but I'm like, this is not boring. Yeah. Because when women in films just talk about guys other women just get so freaking bored mm-hmm. i don't know about you ladies out there but i do i don't want to hear about someone else's relationship in a film yeah <laughs> that's not real yeah like we deal with that enough in our real life so well i don't even know if that's true i just feel like i just am so sick of listening to women talk about guys that it's just like <laughs> i don't care anymore and I really liked how there's like an entire scene of them talking about cars. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm learning new things, first of all. And then this is also really interesting. Yes, for sure. That scene's also really creepy because um, you can see Kurt Russell sitting in the background at the diner, like at the bar area. Oh, dang. So that's how he knows about them. Yeah, you can see him in the background because the camera is like going around and it and it is like circulating around the girls and he's sitting behind Rosario Dawson's character Abernathy. I cannot even believe that I have never caught that in that scene. Yeah it's it's really creepy. Oh my god. (laughs) It's super creepy. Okay let's look at Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? Sure was. Yes. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Did a woman write direct or produce the film? No. But I do want to talk a little bit about Sally Menke. She was Tarantino's longtime editor. And we'll talk about her a little bit after we finish this test. Mm -hmm. Was the final girl a person of color? Yes. And out of the three final girls that are in this, two of them are women of color. So that's pretty amazing. Yes. And were there any openly LGBTQ characters in the film? No. I tried to do a little bit of research to find out if um, Lena Frank's character was. Because it seemed like her and Julia kind of had a thing. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't find anything. Maybe things are implied in films, but if it's not openly stated that this person is a member of the LGBTQ community. Okay. Um, all right. So Sally Menke, and she was Tarantino's editor, and she actually died in 2010 after going on a hiking trip with her dog. She was found near the bottom of a cliff with her dog sitting beside her, and her dog was alive, but she was not. Oh. Her death was truly the end of a collaborative era. She had been Tarantino's editor since Reservoir Dogs and died a year after Inglorious Bastards, which was his next film. Oh my god. Yeah, after Death Proof. Ugh. And I wanted to mention her because part of what makes Tarantino's films look so great is because of her. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people like don't ever think about the editors, which is too bad. Because they're a huge part of why the film actually looks as good as it does. Yeah. And Tarantino once described her as his hands-down number one collaborator, noting in an interview for the Death Proof DVD that, quote, I write by myself, but when it comes to editing, I write with Sally. So Menke felt that their working relationship worked very well as well. And she once described editors to The Observer as, quote, the quiet heroes of movies, unquote. <laughs> Noting that, quote, we have a very private relationship with our directors, most often conducted in dark rooms, unquote. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but I mean, like, 
when you're working with a director, you have to be able to say, this scene needs to do this. You have to be able to challenge them yeah. on what their vision is because it might not technically work. Right. Tarantino was very open about how amazing his editor was and how she, if you watch behind the scenes for Death Proof on the DVD, they have a whole section of the DVD in regards to Sally. And he'll tell people, like, say hi to Sally or do this for Sally or like, and there's this whole montage of all of them, like, waving to her and saying hi. Like, you could tell, like, he really respected her and had a really great friendship with her. And yeah, so I think, um, you know, I think that's really sad that she's not a part of his films anymore. Yeah. I mean, she kind of reminds me of Marsha Lucas, uh, George Lucas's first wife. And she saved Star Wars. Oh! It uh, the editing for that film. If you look at the editing beforehand, it's so terrible. Oh my god! It's terrible, and she got in there and she rescued it, and it's amazing. So, all of the women out there and men, you know, who are editors who don't get any recognition, we see you, mm-hmm. we love you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you want to talk about a little bit about the crossovers from other Tarantino films? Yeah, I thought. It was so cool how he included like a bunch of little Easter eggs in this film. Um, so there was a couple that I noted. Well, one, it's got that like obvious Tarantino style that's like super like gritty and hot and like it takes place in the South. And that's a really common thing with his films. Yeah. And you know what's so funny is that I'm noticing more about you is that those are the type of horror films that you like anyway. Yes. So like that reminds me of like Toby Hooper. Can't get enough. Abernathy's ringtone, who is Rosario Dawson's character, um, her ringtone is the whistle from Kill Bill. Nice. So Buck from Kill Bill, who was like the creepy nurse guy who basically like sells freaking Uma Thurman's character to random people. He actually plays the sheriff's... He calls him his son, but I think it's like his deputy. Okay. So the sheriff that like investigates after stuntman Mike crashes his car and he's in the hospital. That's also, I believe, the same sheriff who is in Kill Bill, mm. who like finds her and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of cool. I don't know if it's meant to be like the same town where it all happened, but that would be that would be kind of sweet if it was. Be, yeah, because it's near. Uh, what is it? The. Second part is Lebanon, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I don't remember where the first part is. It's I in think Texas. It's in Texas, yeah. Yeah. So somewhere in Texas. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. And then the guy that Buck lets into the hospital room in Kill Bill is actually the guy who is selling the Challenger. His name is Jasper. Oh my god. Yeah. Whoa. So I thought that was kind of and that, like you can always tell that it's him because he's got that really deep like creepy laugh. And he's like, <laughs> <laughs> you ladies take a time. <laughs> oh God, so creepy. He is so creepy. Okay, so Planet Terror, which was the film that came before Death Proof in the mm-hmm. double feature. Yep. Um, I noticed that he used, well, he used Rose McGowan in it mm-hmm. again. Because yep. she was the main female character in Planet Terror, right? She plays mm-hmm. Cherry. Mm-hmm. And then I forgot the actress's name, but she plays the doctor, I think, right? In Planet Terror. She's the one with like the mascara that's like coming off of her face. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but she's so she's in Planet Terror. And then she's also in Death Proof as a doctor. Oh, 
okay. I knew yeah. that she looked familiar, but I couldn't place her. So, yeah. oh my God, wild. This is also interesting. Even like Tarantino's next film, Inglorious Bastards, was very much like an exploitation film. Yeah. So you can't deny that like Tarantino is all about like modern day exploitation films. Yeah. I think that that's his whole thing. And even in Glorious Bastards was like The Tormentors, which was from 1971. And that's a Nazis versus Jesus film. Oh. (laughs) Which is pretty awesome. That sounds incredible. Yes. And then, um, I mean, Jackie Brown, too, was his black exploitation film. So since we're transitioning here to exploitation, let's talk a little bit more about grindhouses. Yeah. So what's the representation in Grindhouse? Well, women played larger roles in exploitation films. Yes. They weren't just romance options. Mm-hmm. There were also more women of color in these films. Yeah. These were the only films that were hiring women of color and men of color in roles in which they portray heroes. So there were also some there was also something called women in prison films, which that started in the 1930s with ladies they talk about, which is an amazing film, by the way. It's so it's actually kind of funny. And it continued onward and past the big dollhouse in 1971. And these were older films starring mostly women. And they talked about a lot of other things besides boys. So these were some of the films that kind of started the Bechdel test almost. Wow. You know, inadvertently, right? Right. So um, because these were women in prison, there was only women in these films for the most part. Mm-hmm. And they had a lot of other things to talk about because there weren't any guys around for yeah, them to talk about. True. So that's really interesting. Of course, there's some, you know, sometimes they did talk about guys. Sometimes they did force guys to have sex with them. <laughs> Oh, dear. Yes, and we'll get into that right now. Oh. There were a lot of problems with these films, and we cannot (laughs) deny that. But these films showed women as main characters and also aggressors. Hmm. To quote the American Grindhouse documentary, these women confronted Freudian complexities and shed the shackles of male-dominated society, albeit while wearing little clothing and taking group showers. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. And so the motion picture industry has always prospered during times of social turmoil. And the 1970s, of course, was no exception. Like Americans will always look for an escape during these dark days. And seeing women, especially women of color, portrayed as heroes was the escape that everybody needed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, like I said, like exploitation films still have problems. Um But even today, I think that we're still failing to accurately show women, especially women of color in films, Mm -hmm. because the biggest issue is that these films are being made by white men. Yeah. Because if you look back even at at blaxploitation films, Mm -hmm. they're actually all directed by white Jewish men. Like some, I think some were African American, but most of them were white men. Yeah, and we we not only need to see more people of color on screen, but we need to have them also be the ones telling the story. Right, and I think we talked about that with Candyman too. It's like, yeah, this movie shows a lot of representation. However, it's a story told by white men. Mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino's heart is in the right place, and he did a pretty good job. But we just we need more women and women of color telling women of color's stories. Yes. So there's my soapbox statement. 
let's jump on off of it and talk about the girls in this movie. Yeah. The thing that I really loved about these groups of women is that they're they're shown having just like relaxed, casual conversations instead of that stupid, over-the-top, like, quote-unquote, typical female banter that you might see in a film like this. And it's so dumb, and it's not relatable whatsoever. Yes, we talk, yeah, Like, it just isn't. So to see just, like, a group of girls hanging out, like, having margaritas and just, like, chatting away, it was awesome. Yeah. And And it's it seems so simple, but it's, like... I feel like a lot of filmmakers lose that. Oh, no. Women are very hard to write for some reason. People can't seem to figure it out. And Tarantino said, quote, the women are badass. But that's not necessarily a masculine thing. He adds, they stand up for themselves. They talk like real women, like how girls talk now, unquote. Yes. And somebody said that uh, they felt like the, the talking in the film was too much like Tarantino. Like, every character in a Tarantino film talks like Tarantino. But that's sort of the point. Yeah. Like, his style is him. It's all him saying these words. And I think, like, if you don't know that already... <laughs> right. It's a Tarantino film. Like, right. it's, it's, it's kind of s- to be expected. Right. So, anyway, I thought that that was a really poor argument. And they're like, oh, the girls talk like Tarantino. It's like, well, yeah, but all the guys do, too. Good Morning Nancy is proudly sponsored by Recess Coffee. We wouldn't be able to create such great content without being fueled by their magical beans. And the great part is, is that each batch of coffee is locally, artisanally roasted, and it comes from fair trade farmers. Gracie, what's your favorite blend? Oh my gosh. Okay, so my favorite blend is the Westcott blend. It has African and Indonesian beans mixed to create a clean, rich, and full-bodied cup of coffee. Mm. It has a rich floral vanilla aroma with a sugared almond flavor and a lemon finish. Yum! Ooh, delicious. My favorite is the Austin's blend. It's a unique blend of African, Indonesian, and Central American beans roasted to create a characteristically rich, dark, and smoky cup. It has a bold roasted nut aroma with chocolate flavors and a smooth, fruity finish. The coffee is seriously so good. I don't even have to put any cream or sugar in it. I just drink it black like my soul. (laughs) So guys, head on over to RecessCoffee.com to order yours today. Or if you're a Syracuse local, stop by either shop at 110 Harvard Place or 110 Montgomery Street. So drink coffee, shoot lightning. Now back to the show. So another thing, too, is that they all have, like, kind of primarily male-dominated careers. So, Mm -hmm. like, Julia is a radio show host. There's Zoe, who is a stunt woman. And I think also Kim might be a stunt woman. She acts like she is, yeah. She talks about carrying a gun, but I think that's more for her, like, self-protection. It is, because she says in in the film that, you know, if you're a black woman, you're going to want to carry a gun. Right. So we also don't know too much about their backstory, but we can pretty much assume that they're all independent and they make their own money. And that's maybe one of the reasons why Stuntman Mike hunts them down, because he doesn't like the fact that they don't need him. Mm -hmm. But another cool thing about them, too, is that the girls aren't perfect and that like they're still kind of catty, like they're human. You know what I mean? Yes. 
they are still friendly to each other face to face and you can tell that the second group of girls from like the Lebanon Tennessee part of the film you can tell that they're pretty much kind of like a family right like they haven't seen each other for a while but they pick up Zoe from the airport and it's like they're just continuing a conversation from the last time they hung out like they just pick right up um, the only thing that really made me uncomfortable was that they left Mary Weinstead's character behind, the one who's the cheerleader. Oh, yeah. That was the only thing I was like, they just basically sacrificed the lamb <laughs> so they could take this car. You're talking about Lee, right? Lee, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that was a little much. <laughs> I was like, when I, I would never do that. Yeah, I thought that that was kind of... Well, I mean, then again, they're playing ship's mast on someone else's car that they don't own. That's true. (laughs) That's true. I just thought that that was really rude. It is pretty rude, because poor Lee is like, oh my god. We never see her again. Yeah, I know. So we don't know what happens to her. I would have loved to have had like a post like credit scene or like during the credits of like her like either beating him up like with something or because she's more of the feminine person in the group um maybe like him like crying on her lap like confessing everything and she's just like it's okay it's okay like he felt bad for even thinking bad thoughts about her I would have loved one of those and we didn't get anything so she's probably dead well judging by his um previous character roles I'm gonna say something bad probably happened to Lee yeah so I didn't I didn't really like how we never found out what happened to her yeah that would have been great, though. Poor have, little Lee. Having that guy, like, crying on her lap, being like, I'm so sorry I even thought of you naked. And she's like, it's okay. Just don't do it again. Oh you know, gosh. like, she, like, tames the beast with her feminine, like, energy <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. Holy crap. I love it. <sighs> okay. So when I was watching this, I noticed that Harvey Weinstein's name came up in the opening credits and I was like oh yeah that was a thing Mm -hmm. and uh yeah and then that kind of made me think of like the male gaze and like the scandal between him and all these women that were in these films yeah and uh I ended up digging up Margaret Atwood's 1995 quote and she said in an essay that she asked a male friend of hers why men were afraid of women and he responded they're afraid they'll laugh at them, undercut their worldview. And then sometime later, she asked her female students in a poetry seminar, why do women feel threatened by men? And they said they're afraid of being killed. <sighs> She's usually misquoted with um, men are, are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid men will kill them. Yeah. But that's where it actually comes from is this essay. Mm. So stuntman Mike has a really fragile personality. Yeah. That's sort of strange that you see that in, in in this film. And then you know like what happened with Harvey Weinstein and these these poor women. Mm. And even the characters' lines in the film. Like um, Jungle Julia has her listeners recite part of a poem. Uh, they, she has them recite part of um, Stopping by the Woods on a Snowy Evening which is by Robert Frost. And that's actually really interesting because that is taken from the film Telephone from 1977. Mm-hmm. And it's like a trigger to activate Russian sleeper agents. Oh. And that sort of mirrors like stuntman Mike using that. 
Okay. Whoa. And so he's sort of like, even the lines in this are sort of like representative of exploitation films of like people being attacked. And so like Starman Mike is, he's someone who eliminates women. Michaela Clements, who wrote an article for High Snobriety, I'm going to quote her, and uh, Michaela Clements said, quote, it would be untrue to say that Death Proof is a film that does not perpetuate the male gaze. In fact, Death Proof is infatuated with the male gaze. Mm -hmm. But Tarantino understands the male gaze is a construct and a deliberate one. And the film interrogates and complicates that troubling eye. Yes, totally agree. So he calls it out. So she also says, quote, The male gaze in Death Proof is a destructive one. Though the first close-up of Arlene's feet with her anklet and her carefully painted toes is titillating, the shot occurs again and again, and by the time Rosario Dawson props her feet out of the car window only for stuntman Mike to stroke a lingering creepy (laughs) finger against them, (laughs) the image is distinctly frightening. It's a movie that uses the way the male gaze appreciates women's beauty to show the way the male gaze is also possessive, unnerving, and destructive, linking it explicitly with gore and violence. And that's Michaela Clements. Oh my God. Yeah, this essay is phenomenal. Everybody read it. It's great. So even in the beginning, we have a close-up of Arlene's crotch. Yeah, yeah. Which always makes me so uncomfortable when that scene pops up. I'm like, ah. But listen, it shows her crotch, but she's holding it in Mm -hmm. like she has to pee. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you guys, but I've been there. (laughs) This is TMI. But I've had to pee. (laughs) Like, every woman has gone through that. No, we all have. And it's so it's just like the fact that he shows like her crotch area, but, you know, he shows it in a way that's realistic. You know, so it's like, oh, that's probably why I'm so uncomfortable because I'm not used to seeing it that way. Yeah. And and I'm a freaking girl. like. But yeah. And so I think that's really interesting. And like uh, she even is wearing like uh, flip flops in her lap dance. Yes. So she's not like wearing like sexy stilettos or whatever. She's wearing just flip flops, which are really lame, unsexy (laughs) shoes. You know what? Fight me. okay? (laughs) I love flip flops. But um, I think you mentioned to me that Tarantino has a foot fetish. Yeah, he does. That's why there's like that whole scene in Kill Bill where it's just a shot of Uma Thurman's toes for like minutes on end. Right. And also like why he uses feet so much in this film. I think it's just because it's like it's a turn on for him. So he's like, oh, let me just sprinkle this in here because... You know, I mean, and we don't want to kink shame. No, so. not at all. As long as his... you're not hurting anybody. Right. That makes it so much creepier knowing that too, like knowing that that's a turn on for him. And then he puts that like in the villain's character. Like, you know that he's doing it to be sexual. So it's like, oh, no. Because it's unwarranted. It's not like the girls are like, ooh, yes, touch my feet. <laughs> right. It's an invasion of personal space. So right. it's like, Ugh. yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about Kurt Russell. <laughs> yes, let's. As stuntman Mike. I love him. So he kind of represents uh, the a relic of the old days. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to quote Michaela Clements again because she's phenomenal. She's amazing. 
Quote, leering, sociopathic, and powerful, Stuntman Mike is both a familiar and compelling grindhouse villain. In a nutshell, he has a really interesting backstory because we don't know if it's true or not. Yeah. But he, I think it's kind of mad that these girls don't know what he's been in. Yeah. And that kind of triggers him almost. Mm -hmm. Like he doesn't like the fact that he's sort of an unknown now. Well, he quite possibly could have been an unknown even when he was in his prime and everyone was watching those shows. So Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, like that thing of never getting any recognition. But that goes back to the fragile masculinity thing. Yeah. Where like he's like afraid people will laugh at him. Like what like they kinda did like mm, we don't know what you're talking about. And yeah. he's just like <sighs> and he seeds. <laughs> yes. He's like Uh so I've also kind of thought of this. Death proof is sort of like his penis. Yeah. You mean the car? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He even like <laughs> rams into the butt of one of the cars and he keeps yelling, suck on this. Yeah. Gross. Like, <laughs> it's sort of obvious that the car is his manhood. Oh my God. He is. He's pretty much just like his car in that like looks can be deceiving. And on the exterior, he seems like a big muscly stunt man. But on the inside, he's dangerous and very scary. Like, his car has a kill box in it where he puts Rose McGowan's character. Yeah. He just basically, like, shoves her in there and he's like, you'll be fine. And then she's dead, like, five minutes later. That was a really amazing scene, though. It was. So do you think that he could also be sort of like a mascot for the incel community? Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's like... He is, like, the definition of what an incel is. Right. He feels like he is owed something from these women. Yeah, because he talks about it with um, Arlene, right? Is her name, yeah. Yes, yeah. And And she is basically made to feel like she has to prove herself to him. And that's pretty much why... he feels like she owes him this because he followed the directions on the radio show. Right. And even Julia says to her, like, what part of, I forget what exactly she says, but basically, like, what part of not an ugly guy did you not understand? Like, so that's another part of it, too, is that, like, clearly he is not, like, the mainstream idea of what is attractive. He's creepy. He's he creepy, is. and he he does things that is creepy. Like he'll he like he acts like he's about to sneeze at one point, and then he doesn't. Yeah. Then he and walks all away. Like, what the hell? Even? Yeah. But again, <laughs> it's the whole like men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid men will kill them. Yes, it's exactly what happened here. Well, Tarantino also said about the character, though. Um, he said in a behind the scenes interview that like the younger generation isn't familiar with Kurt Russell Mm -hmm. so they don't know his previous characters as like the hero and like the all-american like super gritty right like Like snake plissken type yes exactly so he wanted to portray him a little bit differently in this film what I also really loved about this was at the end um he (laughs) he's a big baby yeah and he wanted to portray him as a bad guy but He's saying, like, bad guys aren't cool. Like, guys who, like, hurt women aren't cool. They're cowards and they're big babies and they cry like it, too. Yes. 
And I guess like Kurt Russell, like like he decided to make it that over the top. But it was perfect. It though. was like Tarantino was like, I guess it's implied in the script that like, oh, he starts to cry or whatever. But Kurt Russell was the one who like made him into like the big baby. I love it. So that second half is so satisfying because you get to see his fragile masculinity break in half when yes. he's shot in the arm. And he just like freaks out and starts crying and he is scared of them. Well, the beauty is also that it's not expected because in like a typical exploitation film like this, you would normally see like a very macho male figure. So even if they get hurt, they're not going to cry and they're just going to be like, oh, okay, well, this doesn't happen. (laughs) So Abby, tell us a little bit about the cars in this film. Certainly. So the first uh, Stuntman Mike's car is a 1970 Chevy Nova. And there's a really cool um, video that the guys from uh, Hoonigan made. Mm -hmm. And it talks about the car's like daily driver. Um, There's also a really good article that was published by Road and Track. Um, and they said, quote, Keenan Hooker works as Hoonigan's production assistant, and his dad is the stunt driver who happened to be the guy rolling the Chevy Nova in Death Proof. Um, and after the filming ended, the fully caged backup car built for the rollover stunt called the Jesus was offered to the Hooker family for $500. And it's one of four cars built for the movie and the only one that ran good enough to do the driving scenes. Nice. Yes. So... <laughs> That was really cool. And I saw this video a couple months back and they basically do like a whole once over of the car and they do like a test drive with it and it's freaking awesome. So that link is in the show notes for any other gearheads who might be interested. Um, And then the other car, the 1971 Dodge Challenger RT is modeled after the car from Vanishing Point. And that film is like... It's a classic for anyone who loves cars and muscle cars and stuff like that. And so. even if you don't, like me, I actually really love that film, too. Yes. It's, it's really funny. It, it's funny, and it made me cry at the end. Aww. It did. Of course, everything makes me cry. <laughs> but it did. I, I was crying at the end of that. I thought it was really good. It is. It's amazing. And it it features one of the longest car chase scenes in history. Nice. So, yeah. So definitely add that to your repertoire. But... Uh, The car used in Vanishing Point was a 1970 RT 440 Magnum, and this car was a little bit different. Um, It was a 71, so there were some modifications that they had to make for the movie, obviously. Um, But the car was actually put up for auction after the film was shot, and a man in Australia bought it without, like doing any kind of research or seeing the true state of the vehicle that he was importing. So he was kind of disappointed upon its arrival, <laughs> but a friend a friend of his saw the trailer for Death Proof and told him what he had on his hands, and he was like, oh, okay, that's cool. So he waited to see who would buy it, like, in its battered state, and the car was actually scooped up by Movie Car Central, and then they sold it to a collector. But, like, 
how do you not realize what you have? Like, that's so wild to me. I think if you were buying that car in general, you would have at least known about the movie. Unless the guy was independently wealthy and he just didn't care. But I know, like, there are wealthy people don't know what to do with their money. Yeah, true. (laughs) But, like, my friends and I, we would never do anything like that. Like, we would go look at it. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) You know, see what problems we might have to be dealing with. I don't know. But he was. Obviously, oceans away if he had it imported, but yeah. So that's a little bit of history on the cars, which I thought was sweet. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. So let's let's cover our final thought. Yeah. So does the spirit of Grindhouse live on? Yeah. <laughs> I think so too, because yeah. there are a lot of films that came out before, during, and after Death Proof and Planet Terror, like American Gangster, Hell Ride, Black Dynamite, which is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, even Nocturnal Animals, which came out as recent as 2016, has a lot of exploitation feels in it. And it also has sort of like a slow art type feel, like wow. um, David Lynch, too. So it's sort of like a great mix of exploitation and David Lynch. And okay. Anna Biller's The Love Witch, which is all about strong female sexuality and black magic, I mean, I think it is an exploitation film. It is so grindhouse and it is doesn't even feel like it references anything. It is that movie. Yeah. So that came out in 2016 as well. So I think that it's definitely alive and well. Um, Even Tarantino, I mean, he still makes these type of films like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is coming out soon, is about the Manson family murders. So, And John Landis, who said that the only true grindhouse exploitation film to have been released in the last 10 or 15 years is The Passion of the Christ. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So um, I guess it was known as the Texas Chainsaw Jesus. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, even 2011's Drive, like these are all movies that I feel like have a clear exploitation feel to them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Even like Black Snake Moan. Yes. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, that totally falls into that category, I think, too. Yeah. And so like, why do you think like they're so relevant still like all these films? Well, it shows a group of women taking back something thought to be primarily male while still being feminine. Mm -hmm. And Stuntman Mike uses his car as you know it's something that's been marketed towards men since the production of automobiles began oh yeah he uses it to torment what he thinks is a group of helpless women but it turns out that they actually understand the power of their vehicle that they're driving and they use it to defeat him and you can definitely associate this with like any women's movement that exists whether it's equality in the workplace education or life in general right Like, men think they know. They think they can get away with this type of behavior, but they cannot. And the plot line itself is a metaphor. So, like, Mike kills three women who are out having a good time without men. And then the men who are hired to protect, the officers, they don't do anything. So the next group of, quote-unquote, victims take justice into their own hands and defeat toxic masculinity. So basically, it's a testament to women who are fiercely independent, who defend one another and will not stand for abuse from men. There are some very terrible exploitation films of women being abused, but it's sort of like known that a lot of exploitation films kind of gave women power. Yeah. So it's also kind of a revenge film, too, I guess. Yeah, absolutely a revenge film. Yeah. 
Cool. Yeah. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Good Morning Nancy. Don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got mugs, sweatshirts, and t-shirts. Go to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon to be taken to our shop. Yeah, and if you'd like some sweet extra content in your coffee, head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. And for just a few bucks a month, you can receive some fun extra content like bloopers from our show, new movie and trailer reviews, and so much more. Don't forget to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app. It takes just a few minutes to rate and review our show. Follow us on social media, Twitter at goodmorningnan, Facebook at Good Morning Nancy and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Also, tell a friend and spread the word. We love you all to death. Have a great morning. Bye.